Hello, how are we doing? You okay? I've just noticed that little Christmas decoration behind me. That's uh, our pesky students snuck in early yesterday and decorated the whole clinic. Um, I need to check out whether that's COVID safe and now whether the tinsel's fallen to bits. But hey, it looks Christmassy and they've certainly brightened the place up. I'm Jack Chew. I come here weekdays at 12.30 till 1 o'clock and we chew over whatever is topical often with an esteemed guest, of which we have one today, and I'll introduce him in a second. Uh, before I do, I will say that uh, we're going to bring this to a close end of next week, chewing it over for the season, for the year, uh, and have a bit of downtime for Christmas and New Year, and, and come back in January. And one thing I will promise you to do is turn the volume down on that bloody music that introduces it, because everyone's sort of holding their ears as it blares in and out. So apologies for that. I will sort that out. Uh, today, we're going to be chewing over things with Rob Tyre, a good friend of mine from many years now of uh, interacting, met on Tinder, I mean Twitter, uh, many years ago, um, and he's helped out with the Physiomatis podcast and been central to its growth and progress, particularly in and around sort of its, its keeping an eye and keeping its finger close to the pulse of research evidence, what it means, but also making sure it's applied sensibly. I think a lot of challenges that clinicians face is how to integrate that uh, with their practice. And so Rob's what I consider to be a real expert in that field. You might not uh, lean into that term, but I feel he is. And also his career has been really interesting for me to observe in that he's ended up getting involved in research and getting close to methods without getting sucked into one particular thing or flavor, which I think is rare. So I really wanted to get him on to, to give, him, give his insight into, into how that looks for him and what tips he might give you for how to best apply it. So hopefully, if all the tech works, I bring in Rob Tyre. Rob, can you hear me all right? I can indeed. Good afternoon. Thank you. Um, so just tell the audience a little bit about you, if you would, and, and also, um, unless I've misrepresented it, that's our history, isn't it, I think? Yeah, Tinder, yeah. <laughs> I'll make a clever joke about which way to swipe, but I don't even know which way you have to swipe. <laughs> sure you don't. Um, what's the... What's the um, What's your, I suppose, introduce yourself in your relationship to evidence over your career. Maybe that would be a good way of starting. Uh, yeah. So a few people maybe heard me speak in a few different topics. That's because I seem to be a bit of a generalist. And yeah. as you said before, I don't like being penned into one particular area. Uh, so I started doing a degree in sports science first. And there's a lot of people realize that you're just not qualified to do anything. So you start looking for alternatives to, during the course. And that's when I did a... Uh, masters to become a physio and within that time I felt that I really enjoyed the the academic side of things but equally I knew what I wanted to do from a clinician standpoint so I worked um, clinically for a few years before then taking on an advanced practice masters uh, part-time but within that there was there was a lot of stuff that was um, not fed to you but it was it was provided to you as a pre-reading um, and there wasn't really much wiggle room in terms of the the, the nuances to, <laughs> to the different areas of that period. Now, I don't want to be too damning because I find I found that the process of going through that actual MSc was was really useful. I had some great clinical mentors by the end of the course um, who have become friends of Physio Matters as well. Yeah, and we we kind of were able to hash that hash that out in person, which we weren't able to do at university level. And I think that was that was really the, the beginnings of me to realise that. I think if I was to ever go into academia, I don't think I'd want to leave clinic, clinical work behind and working as a clinician. I don't want to close that door on academics either. And so I have a, a line in the sand that for me personally, I think that the best is a marrying of the two worlds. I think you need to have your finger on the pulse by 
I'd been in clinical practice to know what clinical questions are important to be answered by research and which research topics and methodologies are applicable to the cohort that you see. So yeah, that, in, in a roundabout way. That, do you think that some people do manage, do some, do some clinicians manage to keep their clo eye close enough on the research to apply it, not just apply it well, but also be close enough to, to be respect, appropriately respectful of the research and then vice versa. Are there some academics that are somewhat clinically distant in terms of how many, you know, how long it is since they've seen patients on a full list? yet they still manage to keep their finger close to clinical practice. Do, do some do it well? And if so, yeah, I, I think there's, there's no, there's no doubt that there are people that, that do that well. Um, I mean, I mean, they have to, you know, that I think in order to be a, a good clinician, um, you have to be fairly well-rounded. I think you, there's only so far a, a good bit of patter will take you. There'll be times when you actually do need to know the ins and outs of a particular topic area. And yeah. if you don't, then that'll be a consistent missing link in your chain. Sure. So, so I think there is there are definitely people out there that that do it well, and vice versa. There are people out there who are full time university or academics who just seem to know some of the the, the real burning questions that the frontline clinicians want answered. But I think, as always, they're the two polar polar ends of the spectrum, and the, the largest meat in the middle is is those people who are sort of held accountable by publication numbers and those who are just so run, run over by patient yeah. numbers that they, they don't have time to, to do both well. Yeah, it's the, I've described it as a bit of a failure of empathy sometimes whereby whereby researchers and clinicians sometimes really struggle to put themselves in, in the other's shoes because it feels like a quite distant thing. Um, what variables do you see as being key to, to bridging that gap? I, I think... Um, I think everybody should have a go at doing some research, even if it's like a, a mock systematic review, just to go kind of a scope and literature review and, and just really look at how arduous it is to trawl through the literature on one topic area. I think you should muck in with people who are doing research projects and just be aware of how long things take to go from conception to fruition. Mm. Some of the hurdles that you're faced with in terms of the, the knockbacks from peer review, the, the cost implications for publication, the recruitment process, the ethical submission, um, more than two people on a paper, therefore there's going to be opinions that clash. Uh, you need a third to settle the argument or to make an agreement. There's just, I mean, it, it boils down to project management and it doesn't have to be research. I mean, sure. remember when you were in school and you had to do a project with a couple of people and there was always that one person who would coast and kind of take credit for the other people's work and the other one who would work to the nth degree. Not saying that that's essentially what happens in research but when there's lots of people involved it's often like herding cats yeah, um, to try and get everyone on task because everyone's got their own preferences of or, or important tasks that they have to do and your research project might not be at the top of their agenda and it, it just makes things difficult so i think that that certainly gives you a peek behind the curtain to recognize that when you're bashing people's research and i've done it myself i've you know, been clumsy with my language and but if you're bashing someone's research project just think how much time went into to doing that and why they couldn't have produced the research the way you th felt it should be mm. because of some of those barriers. They they may have tried to, but they just couldn't navigate those barriers because it would have stopped them from publishing full stop. Yeah. And, and equally, there's a lot of people out there who, who are in academics that I think I've seen certainly online, you know, feel like, you know, you as a clinician don't have the right to challenge someone's methodology. And I think that's nonsense also. Um, I've, I've often said that peer review doesn't end at the point of publication it begins because i am one of your peers and i'm i'm reviewing the bit of work you put out there sure 
Yeah, well, I think that's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, it, peer review has become and is an appropriate scientific term for a particular formal process of reviewing what is to be published literature. However, the act of reviewing something as peers in a, in a profession um, I always say that what, what, I'm interested which one of which ones of our listeners on Physio Matters aren't peer reviewing that material of sorts, and that the, the, the market has this macro effect on it as well. Um, and social media has sort of democratised that quite a lot, and, and given voices to more people, including some ranters and ravers, and some that might not be worth listening to. But equally, the the legitimacy of that opinion is something that gets sneered at. I've made a point, and I don't want to put this in your mouth, but I'd interest in your thoughts on it. Uh, I feel like it might have been, been with a chain that we were both involved in on social media was I feel like one of the reasons that academics will sometimes struggle in that direction to um, give much credit to clinicians is that they feel that you've not done my job, whereas I have done yours, right? So there's, a, there's an academic or a, a researcher that then is saying, I can empathize really well with your position you literally can't mind because i've done that job and now i do this one and i think the bit that they miss is and, and i found it in person in various different contexts difficult to make this case persuasively is they're missing the change in context that has occurred over whatever gap it is between them when they were in practice and when we are now and and the the demographic changes the 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 circumstances of the fact that all of our favorite algorithms fell away our special tests started bit stopped being special the circumstance of what we've come to understand as being the complexity that surrounds a pain experience. There are relevant variables that, as well as the expectation to see 15 patients a day rather than the eight, those are relevant things that mean that you might fail to empathize with a clinician as of now, a contemporary clinician, or there's academics that keep their hand in. Well, I have a clinical list on a Wednesday afternoon. I see three ACLs most, most weeks. It's like, mm. yeah, the, the ground that someone's in on a mixed list is, is different and it doesn't mean you therefore you know you, that, that failure to empathize again is my point so I've said a lot there that's sort of my take on why these things might break down I just wondered what what yours is yeah I, I, I definitely agree um, again though if we use that sort of um, polar opposites of a spectrum analogy there are people who may say that but I do I do know a few people who went straight from university straight into PhD in academia and therefore that argument is weaker for them to push back on and equally, I know a lot of people who, before going into clinical practice, took their dissertation to publication. So yeah. they have a stronger argument in that in that case. Mm. And just because you have worked in academia for um, a year doesn't mean you're as well versed as someone who's done it for twelve years. And the same same with clinical practice. So that there's there's lots of nuance there. And I think if we if we kind of broke down those barriers of just kind of having a bit of a pissing contest, for want of a better phrase, we'd probably all work in a more collaborative fashion and pull in the right direction um I, I think there are people like i say who do it well um but i think i think that th there are probably not as many visible to others because they do it so well that they haven't got time for social media yeah. and it's done behind in inverted commas closed doors one of the things that's making them do it well is the fact that they're probably efficient and then they're, they're not deciding to then transmit and translate that methodology of a sort or their balance uh, to the world necessarily well, well, that's, that's, just, that's just it and 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 there are people who do that well but maybe are not good research or scientific um translators that that's that's the missing link i think a lot of the time is can you can you write something that's appropriate to meet the criteria for publication because each paper each each journal has a particular criteria and style that you have to write within word count um you know contents 
but that might not translate to the everyday person who might not be well versed in academic language but really is interested in learning more about a topic so things like infographics help i think when people do um twitter threads i think are pretty useful i like it when people take yeah. something i mean straight away tom jesson comes to mind on some of the things he's dissected over the time yeah and i think there is that real missing link between those who are research communicators i think what what i find interesting about stuff like that is we need to find ways to stop it being prohibitive for and tom's you know tom's an example because he, he won't mind us using him as being someone that if some of the thoughts in rattling around in tom jesson's head at any given time if there was something a method that it's typically translating that to the world it's such a shame if um if there is anything that stops him being able to share that if it was that what's rattling around in his head he needs to comply with this particular model of knowledge translation and therefore for whatever reason disp and, and tom Wattman is saying this dispositionally I, I just don't think it would be if the only mechanism he could do would be to chalk it up um and 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 then transmit that through peer review although he's you know weighing in on that on that world don't get me wrong but it's just that i imagine that would be there'd be such a waste of of of, of knowledge if he if he had to yeah. just comply with that narrow sense of translation and essentially that'll take sometimes two years three years sure. to come out and you know go strike when the iron's hot sometimes and the moments passed by that time of publication so mm. you know no, I, I do i see a i see a place for 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 that within um, academia and, and research and, and often I often find myself if I'm reading something I think that would be a, a bloody good series of journals rather, mm -hmm. uh, article, sorry, <laughs> rather than just one article sure. so yeah, you yeah. know I'd love to have a qualitative view on that quantitative data you've just published I'd love for you to have started that off with a scope and literature review or epidemiological data mm. and then ran something to answer your question in a means that could suggest causation more than correlation yeah but then yeah. Talk about the the service users of, of of that particular study and their experiences but equally those who are delivering it so i want to know the the therapist or clinicians context as well yeah and, and i think i'm describing essentially a phd um, well you are and i was just going to say that sometimes the thing that's it's time consuming but when i hear about a particularly decent phd sort of thesis that's being constructed and then they sometimes they depends if they if they're doing phd by by publication slightly differently but just imagine sometimes you're hearing from them even if they're sort of associates and friends of ours you sometimes hearing about what they're actually publishing as their as their piece right i'm done and here's the the, the masterpiece I love it when I then say, can you send me the narrative review you did underneath that three years ago? Because sometimes it just sets the scene. And before I get sucked into their hard data and methods, it's like, I want to show you working is really, but it's time consuming. And that's one of the things I wanted to then come to with you really is that, you, that at times I've ended up stretched too thin, um, clinical education, policy through MSKR to the point in which compared to a few years ago, I am just not consuming as much raw data and therefore raw journal articles as I used to. You've managed to keep yourself fairly close to that stuff. What top tips do you have for, for people that want to make sure they don't get left behind by that? Yes. Yeah, so well, I've got a confession in that I'm probably not as good as I used to be and it's probably still good but I'm not as good as the standards I held myself to a few years ago right, okay. because I've got extra strings to my bows and my bow now that means that it's hard to keep up to date with things when I'm actually I need to read things to upskill myself in other areas that I'm nowhere near as experienced in leadership management understanding pathways that that's something I need to develop because of the role I'm in but but essentially 
one thing I'd like to start off with is just giving people permission not, not to feel bad about not keeping up to date with all of the literature because there's just so much of it churned out there. Sure. And especially those who are generalists who see people from the top of the head to the tips of their toes, to keep up to date with all of those areas of research is nigh on impossible. And recognizing that when you read Twitter, all of these people who are publishing literature, they're not the same person publishing different pieces of literature on Twitter. They're different people who have read something they're interested in. So what you're seeing is a representation of lots of clinicians reading lots of data, not one person reading all of the data. Mm. So, so I beat myself up a lot because I was like, how are they keeping up to date with this? And how are they reading that? And God, this one slipped my radar and my reading list's getting bigger and bigger. And yeah, and you just have to take a step back and recognize that. In, a, a in advanced practice, Robert. Oh, sorry, Rob, it was a bit of a delay there. I didn't mean to talk over you. Are we back? Yes, I can hear you. Just glitched yeah. a bit there. Yeah, sorry, it was a signal glitch there. I was thinking that it's such a classic thing in advanced practice, isn't it, whereby you like you end up with this extra level of sort of safety and governance that you do want to be in touch with. Like if there is something that you, you know typically you might have an interest, you've devoted a, a certain amount of time. Right, I'm going to get back in touch with best practice for Achilles tendinopathy and stuff, or, or, or whatever it might be. Oh, any, and then but you still don't want to miss an article that might come out about the utility of steroid injections for trigger fingers. And it's like, well, but you're not, not because of interest or passion, but because of the next trigger finger that's in amongst your list in advanced practice terms, you don't want to be potentially putting them at any, you know, you want to be the best you can be in that moment. And, and so it draws you thin. And, and so, yeah, I, I agree that, that giving people permission to not allow themselves too much pressure and too much guilt, there is something to be said for doing your best this year amongst, you know, <laughs> it's the best example, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and I suppose I didn't answer your, your question as such. I, I went off on a bit of a soapbox moment. So, so the answer to your question would be there are lots and lots of different ways. Um, I'm a big fan of community support and sharing the wealth. So you may be having research champions, journal clubs, all the stuff that's you know inherently ingrained in, in physiotherapy practice since since I was a student and beyond. Yeah. Um, the, the dawn of digital technology has been a, a massive, massive help. Gone are the days when I used to have to go to the library and get one of the, the, the shelves on wheels and the data cards and indexing and pick out the journal, photocopy it. Now it's all it's all there online. So one of the things I would say is get comfortable using PubMed. Don't be put off by PubMed. It, it is really, really good when you get used to um, navigating it. And I would say just create an account. Just go away and make an account right now. What you can do is you can put together a search term of an area that interests you or an area that you want to develop in. And you can put search alerts and what can what you can do is put a preferences to every week or every month or every three weeks you get an email with the most recent publications on that particular topic now if you're not sure how to do a search and it's been a while since you were at university and had to do a dissertation things like boolean searches where you use an and or or not or truncation of text where you may have a condition that has tendinopathy tendinosis tendinitis you can use a symbol to kind of put tend and then a symbol to capture all that data. If you're struggling with stuff like that, the first thing I would recommend you do is get a good quality systematic review of any topic that you're interested in. Copy and paste the methods because in the methods bit, it'll show you the search string that they've used to get all the information and then paste it into PubMed. That would be the first thing I would say to do. You'll get thousands of hits. So go on the left-hand side and learn to filter. Filter by age, filter by article type. And then what you'll do is you'll get an email in your inbox where you won't have to actively search that until you switch that notification off. And do the same with things like RSS feeds. Most journal sites have an RSS feeder, which just, it looks a little bit like a Wi-Fi symbol, but kind of on an angle rather than straight up. 
and you can get that as an extension for Chrome. And basically, you'll get a notification whenever your favorite journal publishes something ahead of print. Yeah, and of course, you can you can link that to your favorite translation mechanisms, such as our podcast. You know, people that are doing it smarter then got a stream of our they've they've tapped into an RSS that's then giving them their favorite podcast curated, but also alongside that, you've then got you're interested say articles and associated uh, journal pieces and, and, and editorials uh, that can be in amongst that so you're not having to have five different places that you're looking exactly and i would recommend keeping it to a minimum because you can go over the top and just be inundated with stuff that you're never ever going to get a chance to read but yeah. certainly finding something like a filtration mechanism um and, and the corporate shell that i am just like you say the physio matters being one of those filtration mechanisms but just be mindful that it's full of people like me with their own biases and agendas <laughs> absolutely yeah we, we you, need, you need at least layers beyond us to fact check us and, and we love yeah. to hear from you when you do that um do you um when you do you apply a similar thing to social media in a sense that you know i i i know myself that Times gone by where I was I was following too many accounts or uh, uh, or, or, or creating too many lists etc. And I wasn't filtering the noise, and so I stopped using it. So, are you judicious in a similar way on social media? Probably, probably not, because uh, it is a it is a guilty pleasure of mine to sink time into social media where I'm more 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 ju just lurking. I used to be more of an active engager, but now it's generally crap dad jokes and pointing at puns and stuff like that and every now and again there might be a couple of clinical gems in there but but usually i i like to keep my net wide and i think that again goes back to the generalist thing is because I, I get to see things that come up despite a particular individual who i may disagree with 99 percent of things they post they may post that one percent where it's like do you know what that that is gold yeah, glad i didn't miss and that. if i shut shut them off I'll, I'll never i'll never learn and equally people who are notorious for posting stuff that sort of pushes back against my my biases and and it's good to keep myself in check so that I'm yeah. not just running away and kind of reinforcing stuff that you know that just agrees with my my current narrative yeah I often encourage people and I get asked this a lot um, whenever I do any any workshop stuff is people say about it's not just about the content either it's about the style like try to allow yourself to be tolerant about people whose style sort of for whatever reason feels a bit abrasive to your disposition where possible give them a bit of room because you'd be surprised at how the content that the way that they look at the world is something that you you wouldn't want to completely filter out because that's how bubbles get created but similarly if it's such an affront that it's pissing you off so regularly especially in your own time admittedly yeah. it doesn't meet a threshold but sometimes i think people set that bar too low if you set the bar too high you, you, you're, yeah. you're going to get taken advantage of in a way 100 I, I think I've always been a you know someone who's been constantly warned about burnout because of the amount that I've, that I've done. <laughs> I think that if anything, that's probably something you shouldn't do to someone who thinks about to burnout is tell them how inevitable their burnout is. It's yet, <laughs> it's yet to happen. Fulfilling um, prof prophecy. Yeah. yeah, it's like telling people who don't sleep very well. Just you know, you should probably sleep better. Oh, um, yeah. I think uh, <laughs> it, it's it, it's something that you, you need to know yourself. And if it is impacting your mental health, and obviously take appropriate steps in that regard. But but for me, I, I consider myself to have pretty thick skin. You need it up in the northeast, so it, it it's something that I I take with a pinch of salt. I look I on there and I think there's there's stuff that is abrasive. But you know what? I don't mind abrasive language. It's okay to me. If it was to someone else, then that's when I have a problem. When you're abrasive to someone else, but for me, I, it's okay. Maybe there's a reason this person's pushing back at me so hard. Maybe I've missed something.
No, I know what you mean. I think it's it's a really interesting point as well in terms of it. it it's it's a, there is a massive difference between someone that's obliging themselves or feeling a sense of duty and guilt and and and, and things to to pursue this and and to to stay on top of things and that that, that feels more conducive to burnout than someone that's saying, look. I'm actually autonomously in control of this and I'm actually opting into doing it and it's actually something that I'm actually enjoying and I like to put myself under those pressure. I give myself artificial deadlines and hold myself to them. But that's, if anything, not doing that would make me feel a sense of guilt that means that I'd probably be more likely to burn out even though by, because yeah. it's a projection sometimes, isn't it? You're looking on and you're thinking, if I was in your shoes, I'd be burning out doing what you're doing. But actually, yeah. the reasons underneath why someone's doing it, it's very individual. So I think that's a, a really lovely point. I want to come to some of the comments that are coming in. Thank you so much for those that are tuning in live and, and commenting. We've got one from Ollie Thompson, who's apologized for fat fingers about three times in the comment section. So, Ollie, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to translate some of your messages here, mate. He said, the research commentators and translators have much value to add. However, the lived experience of doing primary research, the challenges and limitations, hurdles, ethics, recruitment, data collection, analysis, theory, and situation, theory situation is sometimes and then lost <laughs> so i imagine sometimes that's lost, maybe sometimes you, you i imagine you you agree with that rob that getting stuck into it is uh, is is a useful a useful yeah that's how i got into the one of the systematic reviews i was involved in at ifomt roger kerry put something out there said this would be a good research project and i'm a big fan of shy ben's getting these sweets so <laughs> don't get <laughs> um david anderson oh no rob sorry let's go to this from jota thanks rob generalist does your disservice steady centralist centralist i heard that before centralist voice of reason i'd say or a bridge between sometimes acrimonious two sides of a clinician researcher great advisory research at a sustainable level i'd reiterate that i think Rob, but I doubt you're talking yourself down by saying generalist. I think that's just a term you identify with in terms of the clinical specialisms. Widespread, yeah. I've got interest in everything, and and I find it hard to, you know, I chase shiny things. <laughs> but thank, thank you, Joe. I'd have to Google some of those words, but I appreciate it. Further, further compliments coming in. David Anderson said some wise words from Rob and some great tips. A legend in the Northeast, I recall, yeah. many times in Costa chatting over research papers. Some uh, yeah. fan mail. I'm, I'm, I'm just curating your fan mail now. This is what this has become now. So <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, I, I can see all the negative ones on the on the right hand side. <laughs> um, Ollie's then trolling me by putting one word things under his fat fingers. So uh, thanks for that, mate. Um, so yeah, just to, to, to wrap up then, pal. I wondered if there are any other any other things you want to say in terms of top tips, or, or if we've got them out. But also in in, in closing, do you feel that? Is there anything you I'd, I'd be interested in saying is there anything you regret um having got stuck into with research or uh, where you know you you feel like actually you thought it was going to be something that was really useful and ended up not being are there any mistakes that you've made that you don't want others to follow in your footsteps on necessarily not not really um because all the ones that i've made have lent, le then lent themselves sure. to great learning experiences sure. like the postgraduate masters i did for advanced practice um, I was convinced I was the next Robin McKenzie because I discovered something that no one else had, had noticed. And it was a case of, you know, modified Thomas test and then moving somebody's back and retesting it. Things had changed. I thought, oh, this is the little back extension on the plinth that someone lay on the front instead of on the back. And it, it led to this amazing discovery. And I, anyway, I absolutely chucked six months of my life into looking at the data around manipulative therapy, modified Thomas test, you know, the neural mechanisms behind 
cavitation in my nips. I remember it well. Realized that, do you know what? It was the fact that I've placed this poor bugger on the end of a plinth and he's balancing precariously. And then the second time I've done it, he knew he was safe and he relaxed. And then I thought, <laughs> do you know that is such, such a big story of like getting you, get your blinkers off. Yeah, the, the, the contributors surrounding that person uh, and the way in which you then were able to, to see beyond the, the, the narrow was, yeah, it changed the game for you in terms of what you pursued for that dissertation. I remember it I remember it well. We were spending a lot of time together around that time, weren't we? It was at iPhone because I, I, I submitted yeah. for a delay. I had to yeah. delay it and then I did it again the following year because I thought I've chased this rabbit down this hole and yeah. it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a useful and meaningful project. You and I and the team have been critical of, of some some aspects of formalised education at the master's level in terms of the, the being difficult to shake some of the dogmas off um, and, and a narrow sense of what expertise meant in MSK. However, you're an example of, with a bit of pick and choosing, with the right clinical mentors, and obviously we're very thankful that you introduced us to, and you met and then introduced us to Simon Smith, James Midgley, and others in that space that then have been fantastic for all of our projects. But you're an example of how as long as with t taken with an appropriate pinch of salt, I see you as being, a, it was a real net benefit for you to actually yeah. pursue those things. We've all, we all know the stories where people have come out of it, said spent a lot of money and it was a paper exercise for which you know I've got regrets for. What's your sort of typical tip then? How individualized is your advice in that direction for how people might pursue formalized academic pursuit? Yeah, so for me, so for me it was good. It, it gave me some structure behind my like magpie-esque chasing shiny things. For other people, it, it may not be so good, and I feel like it's a barrier. Um, and I feel it's it's unfortunate, and I always go back to an anecdote, a friend of mine who who's a manager in a computer game software company, who was so frustrated at having to win people with degrees when they're being taught by people who design games for the Super Nintendo, but the games are now for the Xbox 360. So it, it, it's one of those things where you, you think, I'd rather employ that person who's worked their time in the bedroom making their own games on a PC. <laughs> And that's the same across to here. You know, I'd rather rather spend that time with someone who's honed their skills at the core face, but also kept in touch with the research. Got you. Well, I mean, that's a lovely place for us to finish, and, and also hope hope it continues to be an inspiration to others that, that don't need to feel guilty for for burdening themselves with with a lot of reading and learning, but also that recognize that, that you and others have, have done it well and have felt like they can pursue these things and get that balance between sort of clinical research as well as the other pillars that are all being talked about at the moment. So thanks so much for your time as ever, mate. Really appreciate it. No problem. And uh, tell people where they can find out a bit more about you. Uh, that gobshite on Twitter, at Combat Sport Fizz. Absolutely. And obviously get in touch with us if you need us uh, to, to point you in Rob's direction to make sure you're burdening him with more work because he bloody loves it as he's explained today. So thanks a lot, everyone. I'll see you. Am I, on, am I on tomorrow? Yeah, I'm on tomorrow and I've not got a guest on. So you've got me just to tolerate tomorrow. I think we're going to talk about conflicts of interest, both in terms of uh, the obvious ones, the cash related ones. But then I'm going to talk and weigh in on what it means to have an ideological conflict of interest and how they are rarely declared. So please join me for that. It should be spicy. And then on Friday, I've got Liz, Liz Prokopowicz, who's joining me to talk about her new blog, which is sort of her take on, on feminism. And, and she's got a new blog called The Girls That Climb Trees. So check that out ahead of time. But she's going to be joining uh, another friend of, of Physio Matters and us. So really looking forward to that. Thanks as ever, and I'll see you later.